Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You probably saw the report. Girls as young as 14 were coerced into performing sex acts for Utah men who patronized the back rooms of three Salt Lake area so-called massage parlors. In a criminal enterprise, top law enforcement likened to the mob. This is a report from uh, Desert News and KSL.com. Uh, and uh, members of the Attorney General's Secure Strike Force hit three massage parlors uh, this past week, uh, or recently, it's uh, earlier in this month. Uh, just an illustration that a problem, which is uh, plaguing uh, the United States and all over the world, uh, sex trafficking, including child sex trafficking and slavery, is a problem in Utah as well. We're going to talk about this with uh, John Swallow, who is Utah Attorney General-elect, and Mr. Swallow, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, Kirk Torgensen, who is Chief Deputy Attorney General, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Linda Smith, who's president and founder of Shared Hope International, which works in this issue. Uh, thank you to you. It's good to be with you. Let's open with just a 20-second clip from a Shared Hope International website. This is uh, the experience of, of one young girl. I didn't know about sex trafficking until I was in the middle of it. The reality is it can be any girl. I was 13 when I started in the strip clubs. And then one day he asks for something. I found out that they actually had chosen me. Just, uh, just heartbreaking, just hearing that little uh, little clip. Uh, understand 100,000 children a year are exploited in the U.S. commercial sex industry. Average age when they're uh, first uh, begin to be exploited is 13 years old. Uh, maybe we start with you, Linda Smith. Uh, maybe you could uh, paint the picture. Uh, this is a problem worldwide. Sex trafficking is a problem worldwide as all I guess you could say slavery is, and yet organized crime and those that would benefit off of others' labor are starting to focus there in many countries, and America's not any different. We were commissioned to evaluate America. Shared Hope has an, uh, a corporation called Trafficking Markets, a third corporation. It goes in to evaluate countries on human rights violations using um, investigators, and as we were looking at America in about 2005, 2006 for the Justice Department, we started seeing, I guess it was State Department at that point, it became Justice Department, we started seeing that the product for sale, even though we thought it would be more foreign, was predominantly American youth and that they had entered at very young late ages. Several of the ones that I was first working with um, were 11, 12, and 13. That was shocking to me. I just didn't know that. This girl in the clip, she says she had been chosen. Is that, that, that how happens? Uh, the, the, the people in these rings look around, and, and then, then how does it happen? How do they exploit the children? Well, this particular girl, I was uh, actually called by law enforcement in the Northwest. I don't want to necessarily identify exactly where she's at because she's rebuilding her life. But they had been going up and down the I-5, it appears, all the way through Oregon, Washington, California, and they had been identifying girls. She worked at a restaurant. She was in her second year of college in high school. Her parents wanted her to learn a work ethic, an upper-income family. Very porcelain. She looks 14 and uh, very fragile-looking, and that is the product line that sells for the most. And uh, she, when we started unwrapping this case, uh, they had me come in and intervene because she turned 18 that week. She just looked 14. And uh, we found in their, the back records of the phones and a few other connections with other cases that they were working several girls. They were all ethnic backgrounds, and they were primarily using a college football player. He was blonde, blue-eyed, and gorgeous, and he was talking to them about coming to Seattle to transfer their college credits, and many of them were high school, and um, Brianna was still in high school girls. Hmm. So they're lured into it in in some cases? Mm -hmm. They were putting them into strip clubs, whereas the first thing 
girls are used to dancing. They're, they're cheerleaders. It's fairly sensual. And uh, they're already out there doing that. It's not much more in these dance clubs. Not all of them are totally nude. And to get them to dance, they, uh, another one about the same time, they got her into the side room where they have so-called private dances. And it's just prostitution. And um, uh, she was raped. And then they said, well, get your 10-year-old sister. And it's the same region. In fact, these two girls were real close to the same time. Um, but they were methodical. They spent nearly a year at different times approaching them, finding out what they wanted, what they liked, uh, where they were in life, and then saying, we'll deliver that. For the 13-year-old, they started at 12, and her mom was really low income, and she was watching younger brothers and sisters. And so they used the fact that um, uh, they could help her mother. Then they went after the rape. They said they'd show the pictures to her kids at church and school her friends or they would get her 10 year old sister if she didn't comply and then eventually after a few weeks they took off with her they had her 18 months we moved her it took about 18 months to stabilize her and she's got two years now in high school and and she has a good future but she has to be isolated in about five hour flight away uh, because there's two bad guys out there that are part of a group. You can call them organized crime, whatever. They're just a bunch of thugs who actually are pretty networked around the United States, so we're concerned about keeping her uh, safe. And I understand there's a three-pronged strategy. We'll talk about that a little later, uh, which is to prevent, rescue, and restore, to, to bring justice. Let's bring in um, Attorney General-elect John Swallow. Uh, first of all, Mr. Swallow, uh, congratulations on your election. Well, thank you very much, and, you know, I appreciate being here this morning and being on the phone with Kirk Torgerson, our chief deputy, who's really active um, on law enforcement, and I know it's a priority for him and for me and for Mark. I, it's horrifying that any person would go through this kind of experience, and it's it's sobering and even chilling. When you think about it, you think about something like this happening, like in another state or somewhere else, not far far from home. But we're learning that it's it's happening here in Utah, and it's very alarming to all of us. It's been a priority for Mark Shurtleff, our current attorney general. It's going to be a big priority for me as the incoming attorney general. And I really appreciate Kirk Torkinson and his leadership in helping put together a strike force, a multi-jurisdictional strike force, to really look at our laws and look at what we can do to strengthen those laws, change those laws, and have the resources that we need to have here in Utah to address the problem right here at home. And so I'm, I'm really interested to be here this morning, grateful to be here, and uh, I'm grateful to Kirk again for being here with us as well. Mr. Torgerson, I wonder if you could tell us about, uh, I know the, the Secure Strike Force was involved in this, uh, the hitting these massage parlors, the recent case. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about this, um, this case that hit the news, and, and is this typical, are we finding out? Well, unfortunately, we're, we are afraid that it is perhaps more prevalent than, than people thought. The one interesting comment as i've done interviews on this is wow we cannot believe this is happening in utah and i and i keep telling people you know it is it is happening here um, in the last year and a half i have gone to several conferences been involved in uh, some discussions about human trafficking even with international prosecutors what we're realizing is it's here and we just have got to sensitize law enforcement to how to find it what to look for and I think that maybe the best thing that came out of this case last week is we're starting to educate people about the fact, yeah, there's a problem, and we've got to address it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I want to uh, get reaction perhaps from Mr. Swallow and Mr. Torgerson on the uh, the grade that was. There were grades to the states issued uh, by uh, um, the the group mm-hmm. uh, Shared Hope International. Utah got a D, but apparently that was an improvement. <laughs> Well, yeah, we're always striving to do better. Um, one of the things, I went to a conference, and, and Linda was probably there in Seattle. It was mm-hmm. part of the National Association of Attorneys General Presidential Initiative to Human Trafficking. And when I took a look at, uh, at the, the recommendations that, that they made with respect to our statutes, I came back home and started working immediately to uh, look at our statutes, improve our statutes. Uh, in fact, we're going to have a piece of legislation this January that is going to try to strengthen across the board our human trafficking statutes. And thanks to Shared Hope for not only pointing out you know, some, some areas that could be improved, but making some really concrete recommendations on how to do it. So we we hope to be successful next legislative session with that. Linda Smith, what what are some of the uh, specific measures that you're advocating that states adopt? 
Well, there are there is a six prong strategy within the uh, report cards, but they're not going to surprise you. Uh, they're simply saying to begin with, number one is have a law. Have a law is distinctive around the traffic child and identify this as a distinct crime. It doesn't mean you can't amend your commercial sexual exploitation law. You should be doing those things and paralleling them, but making it very clear. States will do this in a different way, and this is why I didn't write a model law, and I was over health and I was over the Senate, the state of Washington, so I'm used to writing state law. But um, So having a law, just make sure that you have a clear law and no conflict in that law. Next, if you um, are considering your buyers of commercial sex, just Johns, change that to make them the sexual offender that they are and make sure that buyers are treated as criminals, not just misdemeanors. The next is so you want to make sure that you have your prostitution law clearly defined that adults in prostitution are it's different than children in prostitution. Adults you need to prove force, fraud or coercion or some you know, they could they could make a choice, although I don't find too many women that do. But children uh, cannot make a choice. They they are protected under our commercial and criminal law, and under 18, they can't make certain choices. And so make sure that that is aligned for the child, that she's a victim of a crime under 18, and it's very clearly not that she's not a prostitute. Then third, there is a section that we often forget, facilitators. Those people that would facilitate this crime and those that would be out there uh, making money off of the facilitation, hotels, online, taxi drivers, then probably one of the most important sections is this. We need to give the law enforcement the tools to investigate these crimes. It's a serious crime they are, and treat the woman and girl that is there as the victim that they are. So rape shield laws, uh, single-party consent laws, um, that type of thing allows them wiretapping to investigate this crime and not have to use the girl in the case and set her up there and re-victimize her. I have the one I talked about, the 13-year-old. I am recommending she not be public for another two years. Yet if I have to put her on trial or in a case, uh, I will lose the, the gain I have in her restoration. So these are the principles, but they're, the point is this. We have attorney generals leading all over the United States who have taken the lead, and they've inherited historic law that is said about both prostitution and child's rights and criminal justice over many, many years. And so what we're doing as leaders, and again, I was in the state level for many years, we're stopping to look at this and going, oh, my goodness, we didn't realize this market in our children has exploded and that our laws just don't work to fight this crime. And so I'm really respectful of the attorney generals and law enforcement and very thankful because the leadership around the nation uh, are the people like you have on the line today, uh, the outgoing office and the incoming office. Uh, they're treating it just the same way. It's important. Uh, Mr. Torgerson, um, I, I don't know. I think sometimes when these cases come up and hit the, hit the news and uh, headlines, uh, we feel a little bit sheltered. We <laughs> can it go on here in Utah? And it obviously does, and including the the consumers, the Johns uh, of, of this, you know, these these horrible things. There, it it is here in Utah. It is here, absolutely, and we've got to just wake up and be aware of that. Um, and we're spending an awful lot of time within our law enforcement ranks talking about the fact that we've got to understand that it's happening. So that we're not looking at this case, just like Linda said, in the old days it was just, okay, there's a prostitute, we're going to treat the prostitute and charge her. And, and we've got to be smarter about looking for those telltale signs, that evidence that shows that this, this woman really is a victim. And we're getting better at that. I, will, I think we've made great strides in a very short period of time because of this nationwide emphasis on it. But people in Utah have to understand it's happening. And frankly, if the men in this state weren't going out and were not using these services, there wouldn't be these businesses. They couldn't exist. And so part of the message we're, we're putting out there is men have got to stop doing this. Um, they are victimizing the women as much as, uh, in many instances, the, the perpetrator of the crime, the, you know, the business owner. So that's, I think, an important piece. 
Uh, Mr. Swallow, it sounds like this is a high priority for your office going forward, especially with the legislative session coming up. You know, it really is. And again, as we're getting better educated on what's really going on out there, and as people are getting um, are becoming more aware that this is really a problem right here in Utah, I, I think you're going to see a lot of support from this legislature. And this legislature has been very supportive of these types of changes we propose to them to really protect kids, protect families, and to really get at the strike at the heart of how how we can we can use the resources and the changing laws to better address these types of issues. And, and I also appreciate the media. I appreciate this program, for example, and, and helping us draw more attention to the problem that we have. And, and again, everything that we do um, gives us more of an ability to really attack the problem at its root, which is how are our laws, what are our resources, and what is the community awareness of these types of problems in our society? We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to hear a a clip from uh, Shared Hope International. It'll be uh, Linda Smith talking about how she got involved. Uh, It's a a very impactful story, trip to India. Uh, We're talking with Linda Smith, president and founder of Shared Hope International, John Swallow, who's Utah Attorney General-elect, and Kirk Torgerson, Chief Deputy Attorney General. We're talking about child sex trafficking. It is a problem worldwide, and uh, the problem is here in Utah as well. We're talking about the dimensions of the problem and how... Uh, we can uh, reduce and eradicate child sex trafficking. You're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or uh, shoot an email t- uh, to us at upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. I'm Ira Glass of This American Life, and each week on our program, as you may have heard, we choose a theme. We bring you different stories on that theme. But this week we are trying something a little different. The theme is... Things that happened this week. That's right. Things that happened in the seven days leading up to the program from stories that you might have seen in the news, though we will cover them in a completely different way, to stories so local and personal you will not find them anywhere else this week. Friday mornings at 3 and Sunday at 2 p.m. What does it mean to become fully aware? The questions inspire the world's great sages. Some scientists are now peering into the brain to create a science of mindfulness. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, we'll talk with one who's putting Buddhist monks in brain scanning machines. It's to the best of our knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, performing Christmas works and a classical violinist, Jenny Oaks Baker, this Friday and Saturday at Ellen Eccles Theater with the Saturday matinee. Information is at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. It's estimated uh, 100,000 children a year are exploited in the U.S. commercial sex industry. Average age in which these children begin being exploited, 13. This is a problem. Child sex trafficking worldwide. And it is in Utah as well as a recent case where a massage, so-called massage parlor was shut down. Girls as young as 14 were being exploited there. That happened in Salt Lake City. And involved in that strike was the Attorney General's office, their secure strike force. We're talking about this sobering subject on the program today with John Swallow, Utah Attorney General-elect, Kirk Torgerson, Chief Deputy Attorney General, and Linda Smith, President and Founder of Shared Hope International, which is uh, seeking to uh, eradicate this problem. You're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com. By the way, later in the program, we're going to talk about uh, whether we should get rid of the Dixie in Dixie State. There's a Dixie State professor who's a part of an effort to uh, to do just that. There are others in the community who uh, want to keep that name. That'll be the concluding segment about uh, 50 minutes past the hour. Uh, we're going to uh, play a clip, another clip from Shared Hope International. I understand uh, this is a clip in which Linda Smith tells how she got involved in in this issue. In 
1998, Congresswoman Linda Smith traveled from the U.S. Capitol to the dusty streets of Mumbai, India. Standing on a street corner, she witnessed a horrific and devastating reality. On my first visit to India, I traveled to a place called Falkland Road, one of the worst brothel districts in the world. I had to push past throngs of men as I walked down a dark and putrid alley lined with teeny brothel stalls, each selling girls as young as my granddaughter. But my eyes met one little girl. It was as if God whispered into my ear, touch her for me. I reached out and touched her small shoulder and she just fell into my arms. I knew I had to do something. In an effort to protect these prostituted girls, Linda founded Shared Hope International, an organization that rescues and restores women and children in crisis. Shared Hope partners with local organizations to construct villages of hope, communities that mend the hearts of women and girls. In the name of Jesus, we dedicate this to his glory and to many lives saved. Shared Hope International serves the community by supporting HIV clinics and food vans to nourish hungry men, women, and innocent children. Each Village of Hope includes the Women's Investment Network, a program that offers education and job skills training. Each village provides survivors with a protective environment where they can be restored without fear of being sexually exploited again. With villages of hope around the globe, Shared Hope International has become a world leader in the rescue and restoration of women and girls and has collaborated with the U.S. government to further research and investigate international sex trafficking. Shared Hope has also partnered with the U.S. Department of Justice to assess the scope of domestic trafficking. Through private donations and government collaboration, Shared Hope International will continue to lead a worldwide effort to eradicate sexual slavery, one life at a time. That's from the website of uh, Shared Hope International. We have Linda Smith uh, with us, along with John Swallow and Kirk Torgerson. Linda Smith, president and founder of Shared Hope International. I wonder if you could expand on that experience. This was a life-changing experience for you. It was, and I have to really be honest. At first, I rejected it. Uh, that particular video was created by some supporters who took something I said and started putting it together, and then they entered it in a White House contest for international and domestic groups that were working with the vulnerable. And um, as I listened to that, I'm going, oh, it sounds like I just stepped right up and said, oh, yeah, send me. I remember getting a call one night while I was still in the U.S. Congress, and I, I had this man that just kept talking about kids enslaved and being used in prostitution. And I thought he was exaggerating, but I couldn't sleep. So I got a fly. There were, there were five days between votes. This was 1998. And I went to India with one of my staff members, privately funded it, very confused. Um, as to why I was really going, um, but did. And there I found children younger than my grandchildren, my granddaughters. And at first I thought, I can't do anything about this. And I have a personal belief that even if it was any of the three of you listening and you were in slavery, something was wrong, I would be required to help you. It's just a personal belief I adopted at the age of seven. And I thought, well, I have to do something. And so I came alongside some nonprofits in India and Nepal, created corporations, put them together, in an, and developed villages, pretty good-sized villages. If you go on and take a look at the video around that, um, I realized I had to keep them for their lives practically, or at least until I could educate them and isolate them. So there's villages up in the mountains of India and Nepal, and uh, now the same first girls who were part of that first night work for me. Uh, they have HIV, but we have extremely strong medical care for them, and and we have married uh, girls and and babies and life, and they're the example for the next 
then we did that around the world. We're in several different places. Then I was commissioned to do evaluations under some um, the umbrellas of justice and state and started realizing that wherever I was looking at this, doing human rights investigations, that there needed to be a place for the girls. So there is kind of a network around the world that we've either started or come alongside of to build capacity for long-term restoration for these girls. In America, we have a network of many, many wonderful groups. They're not all saying they're dealing with trafficking, but they're all dealing with traumatized children and often they're state providers. We realize the state providers with traumatized or children in foster care, et cetera, need to be trained. And we're finding the kids in the system in the United States in the drug rehab system. Uh, the sim- you know, a symptom is drug, drug addiction. Pregnancy systems, um, juvenile systems, jails, and really you're seeing a symptom of a trafficked child who either numbed out to get through being sold at the 10th, 20th guy in a day or the pregnancy that comes with these and um, we need to get under those systems in states and make sure that they're all trained in identifying trafficked children. Interesting. You said in, in, in some places, uh, to, to even start the restoration, you have to get the girls out mm-hmm. and, and, and to a separate place, right? Yes, and, and what is just amazing to me, and again, I'm honored to be on with the two gentle, gentlemen that are here, is that the people that are there in the justice system, from the attorney generals to the task forces to the local police, they want to do the right thing. They just don't have the right laws. And what they've ended up doing is building networks. So what Shared Hope has done, and I call us the connectors, we've had several trainings, conferences, and alignments where we bring people together. We have brought together in the last week around 500 people, of which a lot of them are law enforcement, and they were in D.C. with us releasing the report cards. But they were from 40-some states, I think, last week, and, and right before that in Oregon from another 15 states. And now they all know each other and they start working together and sharing best practices. They also share where they're placing girls and we work together to make it work. We have to work against the obstacle of not having strong systems or the acknowledgement in stage, yes, that they're a special class of children. But we're doing it, and the attorney generals have been doing amazing things at trying to find ways to even use existing laws that were not being used. There are existing laws you usually can find, and we found that some were using gang laws, and that was really, really good. Um, and so we added this year a component on laws around the gangs themselves and added that. It's kind of like you can get an A, but you can get an A+, plus if you have specifically looked at the gang laws and how they relate to trafficking. Let me turn to uh, Mr. Swallow uh, again here. This, this problem is, is many problems. You, you need law enforcement, but you also need other, you know, just regular citizens to keep an eye out. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What, what you know, what, what can you and I do? Well, I appreciate that, and I also want to comment on just what was said. I, I think that we have to personalize this a little bit when we talk about this type of a, a priority, because it comes down to laws, but it also comes down to priorities and what the priority of the office would be, and it also comes down to resources and, and how you have the resources. You just talked about another resource, and that is everyday citizen, every parent, every, every, every father, every mother, every brother, every sister, having having an, a way to kind of be aware of what's happening and there's a there's a real education component to this as well i mean um, we're talking right now as i'm setting my priorities for the next four years we're talking about what we do to educate kids to empower parents and families to be protecting so there's a law enforcement end which is very very important we've got a lot of work to do there but there's also this education side of things where we have people looking out for one another and that's a big thing i'm a father of four daughters I mean, this is very personal to me. It, it, we talk about 100,000 people exploited in this country, and it's easy to just gloss over that and say, oh, it's just 100,000 people. But every single person that's exploited belongs to a family. Every single person has a, a future that is being compromised and damaged in a horrific way because of this practice. And it's incumbent upon attorneys general and law enforcement and governors and legislatures to say, this is a priority to protect our children. It's one of the top priorities I have is to protect our young people from being exploited, whether it's on the Internet uh, or whether it's in human trafficking, whatever it is, to protect our children. And so I'm committed to having great people like Kirk Torgerson 
and others in our office and, and encouraging the legislature to put the resources behind it. And, and I also am very appreciative of this program and other programs like this that raise the awareness so that folks out there can know what they can do to really contribute to solving this problem. Mr. Torgerson, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you, you, uh, I think you likened these uh, sex trafficking rings to the to the mob. In a, in, a, in a quote I read in one of these stories, these you know these are nasty types. Uh, how best to combat this? Well, <clears throat> yeah, you know what? It's just it's in our in our industry we just call it criminal enterprises. It's racketeering. This is a group of people who've decided to come in. They're here in our instance illegally. You know, they set up shop, and their whole business model is is purely based upon making money through committing crimes. And so, you know, the way you, we were looking at these cases is like we have with uh, other racketeering type of cases. Of course, the racketeering law came about because of the mob. Um, but we're trying to be much smarter about going after the organization, looking at the organization. What, what are, what's it connected to? How do we work to really get to the heart of this? And um, in that respect, this case here has all of those indices. Um, so it's just a matter of being smart about using the laws that we've got, even, uh, to, to go after this group as an organized group who's here committing crimes. Mm. Linda Smith, um, similar questions that I posed to, to uh, Mr. Swallow, and that is uh, beyond the law enforcement, beyond the law, which, uh, which of course we need. Um, you talked about the, the, the girl that we played the clip of earlier in the program, she was cultivated. She was coerced um, over a period of time. I wonder, are there warning signs that parents and teachers can can look for, and uh, maybe that story could have been different? There absolutely are. Um, what we found is that for this girl, Brianna, and for the girl we call Lacey, that both of them were smart girls. They were good in school. They had a faith, different faiths, but that they were serious about their lives. And they just didn't recognize trafficking. If either one of them had understood the language, the way the traffickers work, how patient they are, how they send people into wherever they are, their school, the Starbucks, to chat them up, to get information about where they live, they would not have been caught, either one of them. And so we took two girls, a 13-year-old that they started tracking at 12, stalking her, and Brianna, who was 17, a high school senior. And the two of them now have are the base for a video production that will come out for high schools and junior highs the first of the year. It's called Chosen because, really, they have chosen these girls and methodically set them up to befriend them, to get them vulnerable, and then to convert them to cash. So Brianna is the moderator. She tells her story, and she actually says, this is how they did it, and these are my signs. I didn't see them. And then she tells the story of Lacey, and then Lacey, who is screened, you can't, I've changed her voice, and you can see her body language, but I've covered parts of her face. She's in protection right now. She talks about how it happened with her. Then law enforcement is at the beginning of this and at the end, and they talk about the typical ways in their communities that the girls are being approached. This combination is going to come with a package. We're going to make it very cheap and very broadly available all over the nation. Um, it'll come with a package to be used in a school class and it will be able to be used for 40 minutes to an hour, 20-some minutes of video, and these girls will be talking to their peers because we've now tested messaging and response, and it's not going to surprise you, kids give more respect to the peers than they do to older folks. They believe them more, and they're not just thinking you're just old people. You don't know what it's like. Brianna actually talks about how when she started realizing when they had her that she needed to do something, but she was kind of embarrassed because she might look like a kid and that she went further because of that and how her friend who knew about trafficking and his father had heard about it at a rotary, how when, the, when he called the police, the police had been trained about six months before and they happened to get a, a policeman 
who had been trained, and he ended up doing help, and we helped him with an intervention because she was 18 that week, and he could not violate her rights of privacy. So we had to get in to where her life was, and and I had to convince her she wouldn't be embarrassed. That lots of really smart girls this happens too. Now, on the other hand, the 13-year-old tells how her friends made her vulnerable because they covered for her. And even though she was being threatened, had a little tattoo on her neck, was starting to use certain language of square, which I won't tell you what it means right now, but it means normal. Uh, She was starting to use the word uh, John and trick. There were things she was starting to use as just slang with her friends. So she would have told her friends something's wrong because she was a little church girl. Again, she didn't have the same faith I do, but she had a pretty strong family organizational church and loved it, and they loved her, and they were actually incorporating her into the church life, and yet had they recognized it, she would have been okay. So it's going to be in kind of a neutral faith base. It doesn't have anything in faith in the base, but we're going to add some components so it can be used by church uh, youth leaders in all faiths where they believe that each individual person is valuable and made by God, and it should be able to be used by most all faiths. And so it can go into your churches and, and your youth groups. If you just joined us, we are talking about child sex trafficking. 100,000 children a year, it's estimated, are exploited in the U.S. in the commercial sex industry. That's just the United States, of course. Average age for the first to begin being exploited, 13. We've heard some uh, clips and some stories. We're talking with Linda Smith, president and founder of Shared Hope International, and with John Swallow, Utah Attorney General-elect, and Kirk Torgerson, chief deputy attorney general. Uh, Another uh, about uh, four or five minutes left in this conversation. Later in the hour... We're going to be talking uh, about a controversy brewing in southern Utah. Is it time to get rid of the Dixie in Dixie State College? That's what a couple of uh, professors at Dixie State are saying in their op-ed piece recently in the Salt Lake Tribune. We'll talk with one of them uh, coming up. And uh, you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. John Swallow, I'm... I'm wondering, uh, I I think a lot of the uh, programs that you do in the Attorney General's office do have an education component, and I assume that uh, combating child sex trafficking would have an education component as well. Uh, uh, John Swallow, are you there? Uh, Mr. Torgerson. Sorry, I had you on, I had oh. you on, I had you on mute. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I just want to make, make sure. <laughs> I was talking and no one was hearing me. Uh, sometimes that's like it is in, in the office as well. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Um, yeah, so I wanted to say that just a few days ago I had a, a great meeting with um, members of my staff talking about this very thing and talking about, of course, we talk about the prosecution side, but also talking about the education component. I'm very interested in working on putting together some very good education uh, parts on this. One of my three themes of my administration is going to be protecting our children. It'll have to do, like I said, internet crimes. It'll have to do with this human trafficking component, sex trafficking as well. But again, I've, I'm already starting to meet in my transition with people to put together and look at the resources we have for um, educating the population, the kids in school, families, uh, the moms and dads. And again, like Linda mentioned, about about the key component words, buzzwords, things that people, telltale signs that people can recognize when they, when they can start to see if someone's in trouble or being recruited to get into some trouble. And so that'll be a big, a big part of what I want to bring to the Office of Attorney General is the education side as well as the resources side in prosecuting and highlighting this problem. So again, this is a very uh, timely discussion, and I appreciate very much what Linda's done. And I really appreciate Kirk Torgerson's leadership on, and I'm going to be tasking him to to really take a a leadership role in this one of three major planks of my administration moving forward. Kirk Torgerson, just a couple minutes left here. I wanted to ask about uh, any changes needed in in laws to deal with prosecution, specifically to protect the the victims. I know that's a concern. Linda Smith mentioned that earlier on, that you 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 want to get the victims out, you want to get them recovered, you don't want Mm -hmm. to get them further traumatized, and sometimes prosecution presents a problem there. Well, it does, Um, and that that really becomes more of an awareness issue for uh, law enforcement. Uh, For example, in this recent uh, case that we're investigating, one of the key components to that was our crime victim advocates. And so from the very beginning, as we started to brief executing the search warrants and going out and doing what we needed to do, we had crime victim advocates on hand 
and those crime victim advocates have been engaged with these these women and so it some of that is just law enforcement starting to look at these women in a different fashion especially the young girls i agree with Linda. if if they're underage um there's no way that they can be uh out there willingly voluntarily doing these kind of acts and so you know with the laws um Linda and her group has brought some exposure to some needed changes in laws, and thanks to that, we've got, I think, some good proposals that are going to strengthen ours here in Utah. And finally, with yes, go ahead. If I could just jump in and just Mm -hmm. say this, too. I want to acknowledge in this whole effort the local jurisdictions that play such a big role in, in fighting crime. Uh, from police officers to local sheriffs to the local prosecutors, the county attorneys and district attorneys, and also our federal partners as well on this. It's, it's going to be a multi-jurisdictional effort. The strike force will be multi-jurisdictional, and I just want to acknowledge that it's not just the AG's office, but it's going to be a combined partnership to get real progress made on this issue. Finally, with Linda Smith, we did have a caller who didn't want to go on the air, but uh, had a question uh, how to get access to that video that we heard and other information, especially, I think, with regard to, to protecting our, our young people. I suppose the, your website would be the. You can go to sharedhope.org and go into media and materials, and you can you can actually get that particular video. You can get other training material. We're really pretty liberal about making everything available. And when we get chosen, it will be very easy for you to get if you're serious. And so if you want to go in, and even in the notes, just say, when Chosen comes out, I want that for my area. There will be some of it that we'll only make available to those that are in leadership, like your Attorney General's office, et cetera, because it's very serious and needs to be taught in a certain way. But a lot will be just available to you to use in your own schools and and in your own lives and your own churches. So, again, if you can find it, just email linda.smith at sharedhope. Dot org, and that will tell them it's something I said, and they'll say, what did you say on that program? <laughs> Actually, they'll hear this and, and know, and we will make sure that we connect you to that particular video also. All right. Some great information there. That's sharedhope.org. That's one resource. And uh, attorneygeneral.utah.gov, another resource. We've been talking with Linda Smith, president and founder of Shared Hope International. Thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity to get the word out. Uh, Kirk Torgerson, Chief Deputy Attorney General, has been our guest as well. Thank you. Thank you. And John Swallow, Utah Attorney General-elect. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity to share about this message. You bet. Uh, we're going to hear from Thad Box, as we usually do on Wednesdays. And uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to uh, switch gears, talk about Dixie State College Is it time to get rid of the Dixie in Dixie State College? We'll be talking with a Dixie State professor. Uh, That's coming up. Commentator Thad Box. For the most of my life, I've been a learner. From the 1950s to the 1990s, I associated daily with college students. About half of my own college class in the 50s were veterans who had seen the world, sometimes at its worst, and hoped to make it better. We sought education and a job that paid enough to raise a family. We wanted to improve our country and rebuild nations we had bombed. I taught at Utah State University and Texas Tech in the 1960s. Many students were veterans older than I, and like the 50s, students wanted good-paying jobs that provided service to improve our country. Preferred careers were in public service. The 1970s brought a decade where youth questioned their elders. They protested the Vietnam War. Some went to Canada. Others became conscientious objectors or did church work. The National Environmental Protection Act became law. The first Earth Day was held. College classes filled with idealists who wanted to change the world. Peace Corps was preferred over corporations or military service. The bomb loomed over all of us in the 1980s. Complete destruction of the planet was possible with the punch of a button. Students changed from desiring to help others to wanting to get rich, to have it immediately. Greed was good. Rambo ruled. Ayn Rand became their prophet. Making money replaced ideals of service. Students wanted to be money changers, bankers, or brokers, not soil conservationists, teachers, or scientists. 
In the 1990s, the Berlin Wall fell. The bomb was defused. Disarmament began. Bipartisan efforts in Washington led to moderate policies. We had near full employment and the first budget surplus in decades. We headed toward a period of prosperity. Then terrorist planes hit the World Trade Center. Freedom was compromised by fear. Security trumped liberty. People have now turned inward, seeking individual survival. Community suffers. Many of our leaders have values set in one of the decades in the last century. For this 21st century, we must continually remind them and remind ourselves that leading by service is the American way. This is Thad Box. Utah Public Radio raise important funds and at the same time save money on great holiday gifts. The UPR Holiday Online Auction has over 600 items to bid on. 200 of those have yet to receive bids and there are no minimum bids. Go to upr.org. To get started, just click on Start Bidding in the upper left-hand box. Then, bid now through Tuesday, December 11th. And it's not too late to donate to UPR's holiday auction. Promote your business by clicking Start Bidding. Scroll down and submit your donation. That's at upr.org, our holiday gift auction. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We conclude the program today with um, a question out of southern Utah. Is it time to get rid of the Dixie in Dixie State College? Uh, A couple of uh, members of the faculty of Dixie State College in an op-ed piece recently in the Salt Lake Tribune are saying, yes, it's time, especially as the uh, college uh, hopes to uh, receive university status. Uh, John Jones and Danelle Larson-Reif were the writers of that op-ed piece. Danelle Larson-Reif joins us. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Uh, so you're, uh, you're, you teach there at Dixie State? I do. What, what, what is your subject? Um, developmental psychology. All right. Uh, so could you give us the, maybe the outline here? This is uh, something that's been ongoing for a little while, and there's something called, I didn't know that this organization existed, Southern Utah Anti-Discrimination Coalition. Uh, the previous controversy had to do with the, uh, the the rebel mascot, and I believe that was changed. That's correct. That was changed um, a few years ago, about four or five years ago. Uh, and uh, you're, uh, you reference in your piece um, uh, former Dixie State uh, faculty member Andrew Larson. He uh, wrote a uh, text on the history of the name Dixie in Utah. Maybe you could uh, just uh, maybe the couple of minute uh, fast history of, of why the southern part of uh, Utah has been referred to as Utah's Dixie. Okay, well, originally, um, um, Mormon settlers were called to this area to settle the area, which is, you know, very hot, um, and some people find it an unpleasant area. And when they were called here, many of them were called to help um, grow cotton in the area because they thought it might be able to grow and, um, you know, help with cotton production. And um, one of those people in particular was a slave owner. Um, Others may have been as well, but that wasn't documented in the history. But a lot of them did come from the southern region of the United States. And when they came to this area, it it had a nickname already of um, Dixie, which was a nickname because it was the southern part of Utah. And when those southerners came, um, Andrew Larson's research shows they were bona fide southerners steeped in the lore of cotton culture. And so the name stuck and it became a proud part of the heritage here. And so I think a lot of us know that it's been referred to as Utah's Dixie. I'm guessing that the proponents of keeping Dixie in the name are saying this is this is harmless. This is part of our history. Yes. Uh, but I, I learned from your op-ed piece, uh, seemed to, obviously is on your side of the argument, there were mock slave auctions up until the 1990s? That's correct. If you look through the history of the the, YouTube, the yearbook here, in fact, the yearbook was called The Confederate, and the yearbook was running through um, the 1990s. I'm not exactly sure what year it finished, um, but even as late as 1993, there were depictions of slave auctions um, and students appearing in blackface um, on campus. And blackface apparently uh, later than the 1990s. So, That's correct. Yeah. In the past about a month or so, there were students who appeared um, in campus on blackface as well. And I think uh, Confederate flags, you can still probably find those in that part of the state. 
Um, well, if you look through the yearbooks, the Confederate flag has been you know, proudly flown on the campus and in the community. Um, and, and this is just what's documented in the yearbooks, but I hear lots of stories of it as well. Um, There's a, you know, a picture in the 1990s of the Dixie alumni parade float for homecoming that proudly has a Confederate flag on it. And right now on campus, there is a statue of two Confederate, Confederate soldiers with a Confederate flag hmm. um, that, that sits in a prominent place for people to see. I suppose uh, you could argue that, okay, that it's not good that these, right. th- these, these things uh, lasted uh, as long as they did, but uh, the, the community is rooting these things out, and why get rid of the name? What's your argument for that? Right. Well, I think the way the name originated, you know, is a period of history where, you know, maybe people wouldn't have raised their eyebrows about it. Um, and I completely understand the heritage and tradition of that. Interestingly, the community didn't name the city um, Dixie. They named it St. George, um, and Nick, uh, Dixie was a nickname. And I think it does for the locals here, people especially who have been here for multiple generations, it really does hold meaning of the pioneer spirit in overcoming adversity. And, and I think that really is something to be celebrated. However, on a uh, national and international level, um, the term Dixie doesn't have that meaning, um, especially within the United States. It doesn't have that meaning. And, and I would say even on campus, it didn't originally have that meaning. It wasn't until the 1950s that they really took on, when they adopted the rebel mascot, they took on this identity with the Confederate South, and that's when a lot of the things associated with the Confederacy really became prominent on this campus. So for the locals who, who were here, you know, up to the 1950s, the mascot was the Flyers. It really was the Dixie Pioneer spirit. But after the 1950s, it really became you know, very deeply associated with the Confederacy. Um, and, and I think that because we are going to you know, transition to a university status and have more of a national and international impact, we need to really understand the implications of Dixie for you know, people who don't live here. That at the same time, I think we should still honor that heritage. Um, in fact, I, I look out my office and can see the encampment mall that has statues of the early pioneers, has plaques. And we have lots of things on campus that really honor that pioneer heritage and history here. The names of the buildings are named after families who have been here a long time. In fact, our newest multimillion-dollar building is named after somebody. It's the Holland Building, and, and I think we should continue to do that. But for our official name, I think we should not use the nickname of Dixie. Um, I think Dixie can remain a nickname, but I, I believe that the, the university should be called um, University of St. George, comma, Utah, um, which really reflects where it's at and really the, the, the location, um, and then keep the monuments on campus to honor that heritage and tradition. I was going to ask you if you have a suggestion for a replacement name. You you, you do. Uh, and I suppose that would probably be a, a community-wide decision if, if you're yes, successful. Um, it, it looks like this is probably a losing battle. Um, the president of the college said to us yesterday that really it's not the faculty's college, it's not the student's college, it's the community's college. And, and the community has spoken very loud and clear um, that they want to retain the Dixie. And the message has been, if you don't like it, just leave. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the... Southern Utah Anti-Discrimination Coalition will will fight on on this? Uh, Definitely. We have a petition on change.org, and the petition is um, Dixie State College, choose an appropriate name for the university, and we're hoping to get as many signatures as possible and stories from people who can tell us about, you know, what Dixie means to them. Um, You know, we had somebody who came here in the 1970s from back east to tell how they were recruited here, and one of the recruitment strategies that they were given um, was that there was no people with the N-word within a two-hour drive. They they wouldn't see the N-people here. Mm. Um, And and I hear stories, and I'm now on a daily basis of what it's like to be a minority in this community and what that name represents to them on an ongoing basis. And and a lot of us are called outsiders on a daily basis um, and not made to feel welcome. And I think that's indicative of you know the, the name Dixie, that it's very exclusive. We've been talking with Danelle Larson-Rife, faculty member at Dixie State College. Uh, her group is advocating uh, changing the name Dixie and Dixie State College. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, for our producer, Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening.